Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. This is Dan Turchin, host of AI and the Future of Work and CEO of PeopleRain, an AI platform for IT and HR employee service. If you enjoy the podcast, head over to peoplerain.io slash podcast. That's people, rain, like the reign of a king or queen, R-E-I-G-N, dot I-O slash podcast. You'll get bonus content and insights from our guests. Just a little bit of background before we jump into today's discussion. Smart home assistants like Alexa and Siri have become ubiquitous. Around 100 million in homes just in the United States today. And that number was about half that two years ago. In my estimation, they really define the generation gap. And I'll give you an example. To me, they really epitomize what it means to be a digital native. I recently heard a conversation with my 10-year-old daughter and my mother-in-law. And uh, it was something to the effect of figuring out the fastest land mammal and the capital of South Dakota. And it went about as expected with my 10-year-old explaining how you could ask Alexa those trivial facts. The future of work is very much being defined in my den. We talk on this show a lot about AI-driven automation as the fourth industrial revolution. We talk about AI being the new UI, and we talk about voice being the new app. There are a lot of kind of hollow statements that we use casually to describe the shift that's happening in the workplace. What we don't appreciate is that the skills needed to succeed in that future are quite literally being learned today in almost every kitchen in America. The pandemic has invited both new praise, but also new scrutiny for home assistance. We're asking ourselves, is Alexa listening to our private work conversations? Did, did Siri just replace the office manager? All the things that might be possible. All the questions that today's guest has become great at answering. Today, we get a rare chance to learn from one of the pioneers in the home automation space, Alex Capasolatro, CEO of Josh.ai. Josh.ai is making home automation safer and also more accessible at exactly the right time in history. I'm really excited to get his perspective on AI and the future of work. If you're not familiar with Josh.ai, please, I encourage you, go check out their Twitter feed. It's very colorful. By all means, read up on Alex's journey. Thanks to Dan King from Fireside Strategic for the intro to Alex. With that said, Alex, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and your your journey to uh, founding Josh.ai? Thanks, Dan. It's, it's great to be here and excited to have this conversation. In terms of the journey, how much background do you want me to go with? Because I can give you my life's journey, just the founding journey. What's what's useful? Give us the 45 second version. 45 second version would be uh, remodeling a home. My business partner was remodeling a home. We both have really deep backgrounds in technology and software and machine learning. And we just found the, op- the options in the smart home space were really not at the level that we had wanted them to be. This was in the very early days of voice. It was before Alexa, before Google Assistant. There was uh, Siri, but just on your phone and It was mostly a joke when most people would use it, but we started thinking about a purpose-built AI if the only focus was to optimize the way that you control your home, but also everything in the home. You've got energy management, safety and security, health and wellness. There's a lot that goes on. We thought we could build a really solid purpose-built product, 
And that was the beginning. We, we thought Josh was going to be a pure software play. Uh, very quickly realized the microphone technology was not where we needed it to be. There wasn't a lot of great off-the-shelf stuff. So we ended up getting into the hardware business. Been around for five years, raised $22 million in capital, got teams deployed all around the U.S., a little bit in Canada, starting to go abroad as well. And um, as you said, right time for voice control and home automation. It's been a really exciting journey. You've tended to focus on the high-end, kind of the luxury home market. Talk to us about how you segment the market and why you started there. Yeah, so the market's really broken into two different categories. There's the professionally installed market where you're hiring an AV guy to do your lighting system, your surround sound audio system. Maybe they're installing security and cool heaters and that stuff. And this tends to be fairly complicated. The installers get trained, they go through certification, and they're, they're equipping very complicated homes. The other side of the market is more of the DIY market, the do-it-yourself market. And this would be, you go down to Home Depot, you buy Philips Hue light bulb or Nest thermostat, and you install it yourself. Both markets offer a lot of really cool advantages. And, and interestingly, one isn't always better than the other. There are DIY products better than the professional products. And then on the pro side, you get that white glove service and someone that is kind of maintaining it, managing it for you. We realized that the DIY space was very fragmented. There were almost internal fights between the Amazon ecosystem and the Google ecosystem because Google had bought Nest and Amazon's bought Eero and a ton of other products. And we basically said, rather than getting into the DIY space, which was much more nascent and also a lot more competitive, the high-end space was where you've actually seen home automation for over 50 years. You have companies like Crestron, Control4, Lutron, some of these brands you might have heard of, but some you might not. These are brands that exist in every major city, many, many countries around the world. They're really amazing hardware companies, but their software isn't always the best because it's just not their DNA. And so we realized what we brought to the table complemented what those guys do really well. And our approach has always been, we're not trying to compete with the Sonoses of the world for music and the Sonys for TV. We integrate with those guys. We build sort of the brain that talks to and communicates with everything in the home. I watched a video of one of your resellers unboxing a Josh.ai product. And it was like he was unwrapping a Fabergé egg. He, he was just glowing at you know, the beauty of the, of the product. And I've never had that relationship with any of the pucks around my house. Talk about your philosophy on industrial design and maybe just kind of how you took to market something that people call beautiful in a space full of products that just aren't beautiful. Well, th thank you. I, I appreciate hearing that. Um, you know, we internally spend many, many, many months and years trying to get the design right. And it's, it's always great when someone appreciates that. Um, you know, for us, it's been very intuitive. If you're getting installed and running multi-million dollar homes, you look around and you realize the furniture is, is expensive in design, the artwork, you know, it was beautiful, everything from the rugs to the doorknobs to the screws that they choose to use around the house. Everything has a certain touch to it. And when you go and deploy a 20 or $30 piece of technology that maybe hasn't really been thought through in terms of, is it the right black? Is it the right cable? How is this going to mold and fit into the, the environment? You start to realize that clients who might want the technology otherwise start to say, you know, I don't really want that in my home. And so 
for us, it was very important that we designed a product and now we have a few more products coming out as well, but designed our first product to be something that people enjoyed looking at it. It made them feel like the investment was worthwhile. And also there's a, a little bit of, um, what's the right word for it? There's a, a bit of exclusivity around Joss, just the, the fact that it has to be professionally installed. It's not something that you're seeing ads for on Amazon and Google. It's you know a bit of a more premium product. As a result, it couldn't feel cheap. It couldn't look cheap. Um, one of the things though that's interesting about this, and this is something that the car companies have done forever, you know, if you look at what Aston Martin and um, Ferrari do, we decided that over time we'll do limited edition one-off runs. These are products that we'll do a small batch once and then never do it again in terms of the color or the fit and finish. And that's what, what you're watching in that video. We've been shipping this hardware for about two years now. The white is really more of an eggshell ceramic white, you know, that sort of blends into the home. Uh, the black was modeled to be a little bit more of like a dark gunmetal black, sort of fits a modern home. But we did for this special, it was our five-year birthday campaign, a limited edition red micro. Uh, we kind of internally refer to as the Ferrari red. And it's just so unlike anything we've shipped before. And it's so limited. And that's part of how I think you get customers excited is you offer them something that their neighbor, I guarantee, could not go down the street and figure out how to buy because we don't even sell the Red Micro. That's a limited product that just, just goes to our top customers. Ferrari Red, that's the one that I saw online. Nice, nice glossy sheen. So famously, uh, Alexa content was subpoenaed, I don't know when this was, a year plus back, to convict a criminal of uh, some kind of a home a domestic abuse issue. Um, to the extent the market has been held back by anything, a lot of it is based on apprehension about what is being collected? What do I own? Where's it being stored? For how long? What should I say and not say? Is it always recording or just when I wake it up? Talk us through the challenges that you face and how you've architected a system that maybe addresses some of those concerns. Yeah, no, it's a great point. Um, it's interesting. I, I was recently giving a talk about building a brand and, and sort of branding within a business. And one of the comments I made there directly applies here which is you can spend literally a lifetime building your brand, building your reputation, your you know, high quality, your trustworthy, you're not gonna sell and, and leak people's data, but one misstep is all it takes to completely lose that brand value. And from the beginning, we just said, if we're gonna be in the homes of wealthy clients, you've got celebrities and CEOs and politicians, we can't have a misstep. We can't have a case like Google had not too long ago where it was discovered that they had an active microphone in a product that was never advertised to have a microphone. Like that just sets people off as being unfriendly and creepy. And you start to wonder, what are they doing? We said from the beginning, we're going to be very transparent about what we do, but also we're not going to overreach if we don't need to. So unlike what came out of this Alexa um, subpoena, we're not listening and storing audio data when the device shouldn't be listening but also we only listen when we do for a maximum of about 15 seconds because you're not going to give a voice command for two minutes. That just doesn't make sense in, in our world. And we're not storing that data for someone to then later subpoena or find. That just doesn't feel like the right thing for our clients. Uh, we've gone so much further. I mean, we introduced a feature that internally we call Snapchat mode. Um, it's sort of a uh, disappearing um, you know, voice command idea. And when you turn this mode on, you give your command, turn on the lights, the lights turn on, 
it doesn't get written to a single database. There is no record that that command was ever given. And these are just things that if you make privacy a, a central factor in what you're doing, they're obvious. Like none of this was tricky, but when you look at why Amazon and Google have made some of their decisions, these are big companies that utilize a lot of data for a lot of what they do. And so ultimately we just have very different um, sort of philosophies and business models. But I will say if you're building a business in the AI space and you're not selling data, you have to think critically about how do you build a profitable business? And that's part of what allowed us to say, let's focus on the, the high-end luxury market where we charge more for the hardware. It allows us to then put in higher quality materials, but it also allows us to not need to charge or, or rather sell the data because we're making money on the product. It's sort of the Apple approach as opposed to a uh, lower cost approach. I hope that all of the Amazon and the Google execs that are listening to this are taking copious notes. Now, the last four months have introduced interesting new work patterns. I think we're all in the process of questioning, are we, are we working from home or are we living in the office to be determined? What are the implications on Josh.ai product development, product roadmap, when you consider that these devices will not be relied upon potentially all the time and for, for business purposes? You know, when this all started, we didn't know where it was going to go, but our model is we basically sell to small local businesses. It's kind of a B2B model. Those businesses being the AV installers, the guys that are doing that work. We weren't sure that many of them would, would even be able to stay in business because of not being able to get out in the field. You know, in many cases, their employees were living paycheck to paycheck. And what was surprising was we saw the first month. So it really kind of started kicking off in March, but April was the first full month was our best sales month we had ever had in the company's history. And then May beat April. And we hadn't been pushing very heavily. We, we just kind of, we sat back a little bit from a sales perspective because we didn't want to push. And what we found was with more people spending time in their home, they started realizing why they need to invest in making sure the environment is, is secure, is safe, is powerful. And they started noticing anywhere that they hadn't made those investments and, and wanting to request that. What's interesting though is our team during this time actually got more productive on the engineering and the design side because our team, largely software developers, were, as you mentioned, sort of working from home, putting in quite a few hours, but not losing time to commuting. There's a lot of you know face-to-face -face interaction that I think is positive, but you end up getting distracted at the office. At home, you can be a lot more focused. And as a result, we've been really moving fast and forward on, on a lot of the software development. But we also kicked off, we have currently three hardware products in development. And typically these products would involve flying to Korea where a contract manufacturer is spending a lot of back and forth time. There's, um, there's a lot of in-person meetings the way we've done things in the past. And because we can't do that, we were forced to really reimagine the, the approach we take. And I would argue we've actually been moving faster. Because in the past, it would be a question of, well, I'm going to make a trip to Korea next week. We'll wait till I'm there to have a discussion. Now we're saying, I don't know when I can go. Let's meet tomorrow. Let's meet tonight. And so I feel like productivity is up. I feel like for the most part, employee morale and, and sort of accomplishment is up. You know, there are always things to avoid. Like as a, uh, an employer, I'm starting to detect a little bit of burnout. So a number of our employees are starting to go on PTO and little summer vacations. 
they're not flying for the most part, but taking a road trip or driving to a, a lake house or something. Um, and I think that's important to remember that we can burn out working from home. But the result is we didn't end up having to let anyone go because of this. We are hiring a few different people. We actually closed a funding round during uh, coronavirus. So it's been a really profitable and, and just um, busy, busy period for us, um, which I would not have expected back in March. It's a testament to uh, what you built. It's hard to raise these days. Now, in the AI space that people rain is in, we automate the life cycle of employee service requests, mostly HR and IT. Because we have access to personally identifiable information, PII, we are subject to frameworks like GDPR or CCPA, et cetera, in, in California. I'm wondering, as these devices, Josh.ai devices, are listening in on work conversations potentially, have you been approached by any businesses that either have concerns or maybe have presented new opportunities, new ways to use a Josh.ai device that requires you to maybe apply a different level of scrutiny to data capture? Yeah, so long before COVID kicked off, we've had a lot of requests for Josh and more commercial applications because of the privacy focus. The pitch is often, we couldn't have Google listening in in a law meeting or a venture capital meeting, but Josh's focus on privacy is, is a very different story. And so we've heard this in hotels, the idea that you, know, you don't know who your hotel guest is gonna be, so privacy is really important retreat centers, obviously office buildings. And it's been, it's been a growing interest, a growing demand. Our struggle, and this is something that startups have to really focus on, is we can't go after every market or we're not going to win any of them. We're still growing the residential market. And so the commercial side has been sort of a future market that we keep saying we'll get to when we're able to. But meanwhile, we keep having so much demand and so much growth on the residential side. What's been interesting, though, is with COVID, we actually saw a rise in commercial uh, requests, partly because people are thinking about when our employees come back to the office, how do we avoid everyone hitting the same light switch when you go into the meeting room? How do we avoid everyone grabbing the same remote when you're in, you know, trying to start a conference? And so the hands-free approach is, is getting very important. But then we've had requests, interestingly, from plastic surgeons and dentists and doctors because again, the more hands-free they can create the environment, the better. Now, these aren't always ideal applications for voice control. In general, people like to give voice commands when they're alone, when they're by themselves. It's tough when you're with other people, especially in a public setting. And also, do you run the risk of anyone in the room could give a voice command um, people worry about? But you also wanna keep in mind, when you have a light switch in a doctor's office, anyone can go hit that light switch but you don't because of social convention. So I think these are gonna be really interesting new markets for us to explore. You know, we'll baby, baby step, we'll you know, beta test a bunch of these. I don't know, you know two to three years from now, which ones will become the real big game changers, but I have a feeling some of these will just sizzle out and not really happen. And some of these will become multi-billion you know, dollar opportunities. Can you talk at all about the implications of muffled voice through a face mask, what does that do to voice detection? I've thought about it from the extent of myself and a bunch of my team commonly use voice control with a mask on, not just at home with Josh, but on the road with Siri, especially you know when you might have gloves or something on. And it's not been an issue that we've noticed. Um, 
it's possible depending on the technology stack that you're using, you might st struggle a little bit, um, but we work with pretty flexible voice models because we don't know if the person speaking is an 80 year old grandmother or a 12 year old child or you know, a deep male voice, a high female voice. And because we're so flexible in that extent, the mask doesn't really introduce too much issues, at least not that we've seen yet. I want to talk a little bit about Josh.ai, the company. So talk to us about your leadership style and about the, the culture that you're building. Yeah, this is an ever evolving um, topic and it, it changes as you grow. When you're a five person company, it's different than when you're a 30 person company which is different than when you're a hundred plus person company and, and on and on. What I found is the beginning days, it was very much a lead by example type style. I tend to not sleep a lot. I'm answering emails at all hours of the day and night, uh, working weekends. There's a lot of that. But as we grew, that actually became more of a negative because it would turn off some employees. It would make them feel like they're not working hard enough. And ultimately you either have people pushing themselves too hard and burning out or feeling like that isn't the work environment that they want and they're not really happy. And so I've taken a, a big kind of correction in my, my career to really lead by example, not just in terms of working hard, but lead by example in terms of taking time off, accepting that, you know, sometimes you just need a day off. Sometimes, you know, you need a change of pace. Um, and so I find that that's been very helpful. The other thing though is, most people are probably in agreement with this, but I'm just too busy to micromanage every process, nor does that, no one wants to work for a micromanager. In the early days when it's your company, you're putting in the funding, you're kind of building everything, it can be hard to let go. But what I found is by hiring people that I respect and people that I think are really, really smart at what they do, I can trust them, I don't need to micromanage them. It frees up my time, it gives them a sense of autonomy, and then that really kind of trickles down. And so as we grow, one of my goals is that I want everyone in the company to feel like they've got a sense of leadership, even if it's a leadership team of one, um, and a sense of, of being able to make decisions without having to have everything approved and checked and, and vetted. Because at the end of the day, if, if someone needs to have everything approved, it's saying that we don't trust them and it's adding bureaucracy. And instead, we're trying to take the approach of hiring people that we can really trust, we can respect, and as a result, they end up stepping up and putting their best foot forward. What has been the hardest part about starting a company? This is probably universal, but the highs are really high and the lows are really low. When we were transitioning from a pure software company into hardware, we had a team of engineers that signed on to do software. They had never thought about doing hardware, and quite frankly, it can be intimidating if it's something you haven't done. My background is... I just kind of throw myself into whatever I'm doing and trust we'll figure it out. Like, I don't really worry too much about we've never done this, so don't do it. But that risk taking is not something that everyone sort of acknowledges or, or can do. And so we actually ended up losing some engineers because during the hardware development phase, there were some really hard aspects that we had to figure out and they didn't believe that we would get there. Now, mind you, from the time that we said we would do hardware to the time we shipped, was 14 months. This was like a record-breaking fast product launch in the scheme of how hardware gets developed. But in those 14 months, we had people who three months in were saying, oh, I don't think we're ever gonna be able to build. At the time, this was not, a, not an easy type of product. 
a far field microphone array that's able to listen from anywhere in the room, hear you accurately, quickly respond and do the stuff it needs to do. That, that's a hard set of problems involving the hardware and the software. And the lows were low when people start to, to not believe that we'll be able to do it. Um, but then the net result is you get on the other side, we won a bunch of awards, we've been you know, highlighted as, as a breakthrough product and company in our industry. And then you're kind of flying high and feel like everything's great only for something else to happen. You know, it's this roller coaster of when everything's going well, you know, check behind your back because someone's coming and hit you in the head with a, a two by four is kind of how it feels. So I don't know that this is unique to us, but I think just acknowledging and understanding startups aren't the way that the media makes them out to be. It's not just this, you know, up and to the right chart that is always amazing. There, there are times where you're questioning, will we make it? Will we survive? Will, you know, will we do something really bad with this product? Like, you know, if, if you build the wrong IoT device that to get, gets deployed to someone's home, what if we somehow have a bug that sets off a thermostat to max temperature for weeks on end because our clients have multiple homes and they might not be back for three months? Like that could destroy a home. Like these are things that you look at 2001 Space Odyssey with HAL, we need to make sure that we don't get into that space. So I think for me, it's just a matter of, I believe we could build anything. I don't know how quickly or how hard, but we could build anything, but making sure that you've got the right team that is optimistic and confident and you know can kind of weather the downturns because you're gonna have some, some rough days. A real rite of passage for entrepreneurs is that first time when you're sweating payroll. Now, uh, along those lines, give us one example of something you'd do differently if you were starting Josh.ai today. Oh, it's a good question. Um, first thing that comes to mind is just technology evolved so quickly. Five years ago, we were really cutting edge with everything that we did. If we were to do the same thing starting today, it would be a different landscape. I, I, would, almost, I would almost question starting the business today with Amazon and Google and everything else going on. But at the time and with the head start we had, we were able to really carve ourselves you know, as, as a, a niche early on. One of the things that we have often internally discussed about doing sooner was we took two years before we launched hardware and or before we started building the hardware, launched at sort of year three and a, a half. Um, we, we struggled to get sales in the, moving in the right direction when we were a pure software play. And if anyone's interested or exploring the smart home space, what we've learned is you can make money selling boxes, selling hardware, selling gear. It's really hard to make reasonable money selling pure software, and at least with the type of stuff we do and, and the way that we've approached it. So I would go about building hardware pretty much from day one, um, knowing what we know now. And then the other thing, which is just a lesson learned that we'll keep relearning and everyone always talks about this, but you still screw it up all the time is be really slow to hire and really fast to, to fire. We've had people that we knew were not working out that we said, well, you know, they're, they're improving and, you know, there's, there's an aspect that we like, so we'll put up with the aspect that we don't like. And every time that's happened, it ends up just becoming a bigger and bigger issue that if we had, you know, ended it in the beginning when we were, you know, first aware that there was a mismatch of culture and everything else, I think just I would have had more uh, enjoyable nights. 
it feeds everyone. Like if someone's a downer, everyone in the company kind of sees that and it impacts them. And I think it's important to just really maintain a sense of you want positivity, you want people that are excited. And if, if someone is just a downer and complaining and saying, we'll never be able to do that. Why are we even trying to do that? And they say that, you know, for enough time, the rest of the team start to listen to that. And that's, that's been some of the stuff that I wish we could have, you know, gotten ahead of sooner. Yeah, it's, we're, we're bad out of time, but I got I to gotta get this one last question. And so you talked a little bit about competing with, uh, with Amazon and with Google. You got a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs out there. What's your advice for anyone who's about to uh, be, a, be a, David, a David and go try to slay Goliath? What's, what's been your secret and what, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, so I hear this all the time, and I think it's it's really a matter of not understanding the market appropriately. So an example of this would be, let's pretend there's a company that really owns a market. So let's take Starbucks, for example. And you said, I want to slay that giant and basically do what they do for the customers that they currently have. You're fighting an uphill battle that is probably not going to work out. But instead, if you said, hey, Starbucks, has they've never gotten on the bandwagon of this new emerging trend of boba tea or chai teas or something that they're not very good at doing. And you were to say, I'm going to survey customers. I'm going to understand the market. People want this. There's a, a gap in what's available. There's a barrier to do it. The reason Starbucks isn't doing it is because it's really hard or it doesn't align with their model or there's a sourcing problem or something. And you figure out that there's a need, there's a sizable market, and you have some unique insight into how to build that market, penetrate that market, build your customer base. Well, you've basically answered from the get-go why you're not slaying the, the Goliath. You're, or, yeah, you're letting Starbucks be Starbucks, and you're creating a new entity that will either live alongside Starbucks or let Starbucks kill themselves over time. And, and that's kind of what we found in the smart home space we surveyed initially 100 people that had smart homes in 2015 when we started. And all of them said they felt like things were overpriced, too complicated, didn't love what they had. And so that told us there was a market. And when we started diving into, well, why don't they like what's available and why don't people make better products? Because it's really, really hard. And voice control, machine learning, AI was a part of how to make that better. But building the right hardware, building the right ecosystem, there's a lot to it. And so I don't really worry about Amazon and Google because they're really playing in a different space or serving a different customer. They very well might be successful at what they're doing, but that doesn't impede on our ability to be successful at what we do. You know, we've really carved a niche that I know is hard for others to get into and is needed by many, many people. Alex, it feels like we're just getting started, but uh, we're going to have to wrap up. Maybe uh, as some of these trends unfold, we'll have you back for a second version of this. How does that sound? Sounds great. Always happy to chat. Well, there you have it. Uh, Alex Capasalatro, CEO of Josh.ai. For all those listening, if you'd like to hear more, go to peoplerain.io slash podcasts, sign up for the newsletter. And again, thanks to Dan King from Fireside Strategic for the intro. Back this time next week with another fascinating conversation with a fascinating guest. <laughs>